Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my Behind the Scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read. So I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of At Kelly Hook Reads Books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves, and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. December is a quiet publishing month, so I am taking this time to release some fun episodes that are a little different from my usual fare. As most of you probably know, at the beginning of each month on Thursdays, I run a behind-the-scenes series where I chat with someone in the book industry about their job and what it entails. So for this episode, I am reminiscing about some of those favorite behind-the-scenes conversations, and I follow each introduction to the conversation with a clip from that episode. I will also include when the original interview ran in my introductions, as well as a link to each episode in my show notes, so that you can go back and catch the entire show if you missed it the first time around. Or if this little blurb reminds you how much you enjoyed the interview originally, you can go back and catch it again. I loved revisiting each of these conversations, and I hope you will have the same experience as well. The first interview is with Davina Morgan-Witz, founder of BookBrowse. The full interview ran on March 2nd. BookBrowse is a website that is focused on books and is a phenomenal resource for avid readers, book club leaders, and others who are sourcing book material. In this portion of our interview, Davina discusses why and how she started BookBrowse and how it has grown and morphed over the years. Well, how and when did you decide to launch BookBrowse and what did it look like initially? It looked initially like every other website on the internet back in 1998. Very, very basic. I started it because my now very adult daughter was three at the time, and she loved the world. She loved the world so much that she had to hug everybody in it. And going out anywhere with her was a liability because she would, as soon as I let go of her hand, she would disappear and I'd find her hugging somebody, hugging entire rows of people, <laughs> just exploring her wonderful, beautiful world. So while I loved her nature, it just wasn't very safe to go out and try and look inside a book and read a few pages in a bookstore or a library. So I thought, well, there's this new internet thing. I can go and dial up my AOL connection and go and look at Amazon and so and find books there. And so I went to Amazon and I found a couple of books that looked interesting and I bought them. And when they arrived, I found they were absolute rubbish. The reason I'd picked the wrong books was I hadn't been able to open the book and read a few pages as I would have if I'd been in the bookstore or library. And so the basic premises of Book Browse was simply to provide excerpts online because nobody at that time was doing that. On Amazon, all you could find at the time was the jacket description. You initially started with being able to browse. And what happened from there? Slowly over time, we added more and more features. I, initially, I thought we would just uh, basically combine the best features of being in a bookstore with reading the Sunday newspapers. So we gathered together the essence of the media reviews for each book and an excerpt so people had the information they could 
to decide for themselves. And then people started saying, well, what's your opinion of the book? So we slowly segued into writing our own reviews. And then people kept on emailing and saying, I've read this book, what should I read next? And so I realized that instead of madly writing emails trying to recommend books, we could build that reader-like function into the website. And of course, at the time we were coming up as a website was also the huge boom in book clubs. It was the time of the early Oprah years, and book clubs were taking off all over the place. And our focus was quickly moving to the books that frankly interested me, which were the ones which have things to think about, to discuss. And so then we started building out the whole book clubs part of the website. So over time, as people started asking for different things, consumers are saying, I'd love more book club information, or I'd love additional resources about this book, you just continue to add features. Exactly. We are highly research-driven, in, in, by which I mean we constantly are asking our visitors what they like, what they don't like. On any given year, we're probably researching six or 7,000 people and have been doing for over the last 15 years. So many, many research surveys are asking people directly about what they like about book browse, but also asking about aspects of their book club, their reading interests, everything to try and provide a resource which meets the need of our particular type of reader. The next conversation is with Jane Green, founder and creative director of Emerald Audio. The full interview ran on April 6th. Emerald Audio is a company recently created to produce female-produced scripted fiction for the podcast platform. In this part of our conversation, we discuss how serial stories are making a resurgence and how they resemble the radio serials from the earlier days of the medium. I know that the first two serial podcasts have been written by you and by Jenna Blum, who I've interviewed for the podcast about The Key of Love. So you are working on a third one as well. So are you going to just focus on serial podcasts or are you going to expand over time to other things? Well, right now we're very focused on fiction because there is so little uh, on the podcast platform. And what there is tends to be very focused to men or to genre, genre fiction. So there's quite a lot of sci-fi and fantasy, that kind of thing. But there's very, very little for women. So we're, we're slowly figuring out what works. One of the things that we have enormous belief in are rom-coms. So we are looking, we're developing a, a, a number of rom-coms. But at the same time, we're also starting to gather existing podcasts that are, that are presented by women but bringing them in under the Emerald umbrella to handle their sales, marketing and distribution. So even though we're not producing them, or you know, our focus is, is producing the, the uh, scripted fiction, but we're bringing in conversational podcasts, chat podcasts, anything that, that has a, a similar audience to our audience, we're starting to look at those because my partners are the founders of Cadence 13, which was a, a, a very successful large podcast network that they sold two years ago. And their area of expertise is really sales, marketing and distribution. So we're taking advantage of that and bringing in existing podcasts and looking to grow them. So we're, we're building something successful where we can also do cross-pollination and market in other podcasts. I think that's so helpful. I am part of a podcast network and they handle a lot of what you're talking about. And it's wonderful. The advertising, 
the promotion, a variety of those type of things. And I feel like it's eliminated some of that for me, which has made it really nice. Plus, when you all band together, you can have more advertising, more shows participating in one advertising campaign. It just makes sense, the economies of scale. Yeah, absolutely. And and the best way to market a podcast is to feature it in other podcasts. So the more that we have under our umbrella, the better it is for everyone. For sure. Cross-promoting is wonderful. So I find the Serial Podcast fascinating because it's almost like that's where we started radio shows a hundred and something years ago. And now we're back to that. I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. I, I feel much the same way. You know, I grew up in London and I grew up listening to the BBC radio plays. And even as a teenager, I remember the number of times I couldn't get out the car because I was so invested in listening to the radio play. And it's very different to listening to an audiobook because it's not one narrator. And if you don't like their voice, then it's a problem. It's not all the exposition that happens in a, in a novel. This is a, it's scripted fiction. So it's a full cast of characters, all the sound effects. So it really, it, it's what they call an immersive experience. And as you just pointed out, this is how soap operas began. Soap operas were originally radio plays for the busy 1950s housewife. And she didn't have time to stop and watch a, a television show or you know, she had no time to read a book because she was so busy cooking and cleaning and raising the kids that they created these serialized radio plays. They were sponsored by soap companies, hence the name soap opera. So we've, we've come full circle because, of course, we're so busy today. The modern woman is busier than ever before with jobs and children and numerous side hustles now. And, and I think people's attention spans are shorter and shorter. But this is a new way of, of, of story. You know, we can still be transported into another world without having to stop everything we're doing and take the time to, to watch a TV show or read a book. The next conversation is with Carolyn Blakey, executive editor at Flatiron Books. The full interview ran on May 4th. As an executive editor, Carolyn acquires books that she wants to publish at Flatiron Books. In this interview snippet, She talks about the book acquisition process, how she decides what to acquire, how the process works, determining whether a book is a good fit for her personally, and more. Well, I'm excited to start talking about the acquiring of books. And once we scheduled this interview and I was looking into you more, I realized you were the editor and have acquired three books that I rave about all the time. Angie Cruz's How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, Charlotte McGonaghy's Once There Were Wolves, and Meet Me at the Museum by Ann Youngson. I love all three of those books. And so I just would love to talk more about the acquiring process and what that looks like for you, how many manuscripts you get, how all that happens for you. Absolutely. And I, you know, I adore all of those books and love, love talking about them. So, so the acquisition process, I feel like this is something that's very, it's very opaque for people that aren't in the industry. And I always love talking about it and, you know, trying to shed a little bit more light on it. So Basically, most of the I'm I'm at one of the what we call the big five publishing companies, Macmillan, and most of the big five have policies where we only accept agented submissions. So an author can't directly reach out to me with a manuscript. They need to be represented by an agent. And in some cases, we'll find a really talented writer, you know, maybe on Twitter or at a writer's conference or through a literary magazine, and they won't have representation yet. Um, and in those cases, sometimes we'll 
you know, we'll set them up with an agent directly. But we think it's very important that an author have that representation and that support and, you know, that other voice in the room. So another big part of my job is meeting agents and taking them to lunch, taking them to drinks, doing a Zoom call with them, you know, meeting them at a literary event and just getting to know them, not only in terms of the books that they've worked on, but their kind of personal taste and their personal interests and telling them about the things that I get really excited about when I'm encountering a submission. Because, you know, there are so many agents out there and so many editors and so many choices when they're putting together their sub- submission list. So I want to make sure that the submissions that I'm getting from agents are as kind of targeted to me as possible so that they'll have the best chance of of being acquired by Flatiron if they're the right fit for us. So that's a big part of the job is making those, like creating that network and that community of agents that that I think will will be able to send me projects that I'll fall in love with and, and want to acquire. And I, I tend, you know, I have a few agents that I've done multiple books with, but I also love meeting new people and being surprised and makes me happy when, you know, when somebody reaches out who I, who I hadn't met before, hadn't, you know, is maybe relatively new to the industry or is just somebody that I've never crossed paths with. And we have a chance to, you know, to have a good conversation and and get to know each other. So then, you know, agents, when they're, signing up an author, putting together the submission list of editors that they'll send it to. Everybody has a different process. So when agents are putting together the list of the editors that they're going to submit to, I'm hoping that I'll be on the list for the books that will be good fits for me. And um, I get them, you know, they land in my email inbox. Often an agent will give me a heads up call to pitch me on the phone or pitch me over email. And I usually get, I get, I get quite a few submissions. So it depends a little bit on, you know, any given week or month, but I would say I usually get around 15 submissions a week. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and because I do almost entirely fiction, I'm not getting proposals. I'm getting full manuscripts. So the whole novel is landing in my inbox. So I need to make, you know, obviously I, I physically can't read every word of every submission that lands in my inbox. So, you know, I'm making decisions based on, the first 50 pages that I'm reading or um, what I know about the author and the agent and the pitch and prioritizing things based on how, how compelling the pitch is and how compelling those early pages are. And, you know, I try to get back to agents in as timely a manner as possible. And I only publish about eight books a year, you know, give or take a couple, depending on the year. So those are pretty small odds. And I'll often, you know, I'll often reject a book that's really strong, but it's just for whatever reason doesn't feel like the right fit for me or the right fit for Flatiron. And sometimes I'll redirect to one of my colleagues, but, but, you know, I do end up rejecting quite a lot of the submissions that I see, but the, you know, one of the very best feelings as an editor is to fall in love with something on submission because you feel like you you know, you have this secret, like you're one of the first people to read this book and to discover this amazing thing that, you know, hopefully like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of readers will, will fall in love with down the line. And that those are the moments that really keep me going and make me drop everything for a really exciting submission. So, 
So when that happens, I try to read as fast as I possibly can and then share it with my team. So I work with an assistant editor, so I'll often send it to her. I'll send it to our publisher as soon as I think there's something there. She's also a really fast reader, so she's amazing, an amazing resource and you know, we'll we'll read it together and and then confab about it the next day or whenever we've whenever we've finished. And then, you know, if if we agree that it's something that we want to pursue, then we'll put an offer together. So that means running a profit and loss statement based on the numbers that we think the book will sell. And that is based on what are called comp titles in the industry. So those are comparative titles, like books that that feel that have already published, that feel like they're for a similar readership or we have similar sales expectations for this this new book. And you know, you can never be certain, but but we're steeped in in these titles and and you know, we know we follow the industry very closely, especially the, you know, the kind of fiction that I publish. I, I know that that market very well. So I'm making my most educated guess. And then, you know, based on that, we put together the advance that we think we want to pay for the book. And then we sort of, you know, you have to kind of see based on the level of interest elsewhere, like maybe it feels like there's a ton of excitement and interest in the industry and you want to snap it up before anybody else does. So that's when you make what's called a preemptive offer. And basically that's offering an advance before the auction in hopes that you can just kind of seal the deal right away. And, you know, sometimes if you have a really, I I should mention also a crucial part of this process is before anything else, I'll have a phone call with the author and make sure that, you know, we have a good connection, that we share the same editorial vision for the book, because the last thing you want is, you know, to work with an author who has a different vision for the book than you do. And that's terrible for the author. It's, It's terrible for the publisher. So that happens has only happened to me a handful of times. Usually if I'm connecting with something in this really strong way, it's because I, I feel like I really see what the author is doing. And I, I have ideas perhaps for, for how to help them actualize that vision even more and, and fully get to bring the book to, to where they want it to be. You know, but occasionally it becomes clear that our visions are not aligned. And in those cases, it's, it, you know, it's, it's much better for everyone that that the author go with a different editor and a different a different publishing vision but but assuming that we've had a great call then you know we'll either try to preempt it or we'll wait until the book goes to auction and there are many different structures of auctions rules for auctions it often just depends on on the demand for the book and and the agent's preference and the author's preference and you know, I've been in auctions where there's been a dozen publishers interested or, you know, two or three. You never really know. Um, but, you know, those are those are very exciting days and also very stressful days. And, you know, we've all we've all lost books that we really loved. And and those are those are hard, hard to to let go of. But but they're, they're made up for by those amazing moments when you are able to acquire something incredible. This interview is with Kristen Cusick-Lewis, Contributing Books Editor at Real Simple Magazine. The full interview ran on June 1st. For each issue of Real Simple, Kristen picks her favorite books of that month to highlight. We chat about the various places from which she sources her book selections and how hard it is to wade through all of the titles publishing today. I am always so eager to see what she has picked for each month. 
So you touched on this a little bit, but how do you learn about most upcoming titles? How do you come up with your list of 40 to 50 books for a month? Like where, how do you source that? So it can be everything from, well, I would say the the most common way is that I'm just in touch with the publicists at the various publishing houses who send me press releases. All, I mean, you should see my email inbox is just, I'm sure you struggle with the same thing. I do. Yes. So I just keep a running, I'm pretty analog and old school. I keep a running list in a notebook for each month. And as I hear about things that I think might work, I write it down on that list. I also use Library Journal has a wonderful pre-pub alert column. And I go through that after I'm starting my list to make sure I'm not missing anything. I think like a lot of readers, I do what readers do. And I'm friendly with lots of authors on Instagram. So I'll see whose books, you know, might be coming out and I'll jot that down. And then I go from there. I was curious to hear how you were doing it yourself for real simple, but I was also curious to hear how you do it for my own use because I am inundated. And sometimes I'm like, how can I keep up with all of this? And I've tried so many different systems and I still don't feel like I have a very good one. It's difficult because there's just so much and it comes in big waves. And I'm going to have to look up Library Journal's list. I didn't know they had that. Oh, it's wonderful. It's called Prepub Alert and it's hugely helpful. And she, it's, um, I'm forgetting her last name, but the woman who puts it together, her name is Barbara something. And she keeps a huge list of every genre. And then she compiles it all in one big list at the end of each month. And I go through that just to make sure I'm not missing anything because occasionally I do miss a big book. And then when it comes out and makes a huge splash, I am kicking myself that I didn't see it. That's devastating to me when I miss a big book. So I agree. I hate when that happens. And sometimes I'll be like, I've never heard of this book. And then I'll look back through my emails and I was like, oh, it was actually pitched this book and I just passed. So I really hate that because I'm like, oh, this would have been such a good one to highlight. So yeah. So sometimes actually I go back and pick them up because I have a little bit, I have some flexibility. So if it's a month that's quieter for me, I'll go back and pick it up. But a lot of times there's so many other good things coming out that I can't. So I just have to highlight it elsewhere. Yes. I will give you a perfect example of one that I missed was tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I got the press release and I read it and I thought video games, that's not really our reader. And I let it go. And then of course it was like one of the biggest books of last year. So I was very unhappy with myself for missing that one. It's hard. I mean, there are just so many books coming out and I think it's getting more and more that way. I mean, I feel like 2023 has been the largest yet. And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Susan Rigetti's cover story is the one that got by me. And I ended up loving that book. And people were posting all over Instagram. And I was like, how did I miss this one? And I guess I'm just not a huge con artist person most of the time. So I think I must have passed thinking, oh, you know, I I don't need that. But then in the end, it was fabulous. And I was sad I'd missed it. Yes, yes, I know. Isn't that a bummer? But then on the flip side, I don't know if you feel this way, but on the flip side, when one of the big national book clubs like Read with Jenna or Reese's Book Club picks a book that I've picked, I feel validated. So that's good. I agree with that completely. I'm like, oh, I loved that book. And I read it before I knew anybody else was going to like it. (laughs) This conversation is with Jenny Brown, senior editor at Shelf Awareness. The full interview ran on July 6th. I read Shelf Awareness Pro first thing each weekday morning and learn so much about the book business from them. In this blurb from our conversation, we chat about the book reviews on Shelf Awareness, who the reviewers are, how Shelf Awareness decides what to review, what the parameters are for their reviews, and more. So let's talk about the review side. I asked my patrons if they had any questions, and one of them wanted to know what makes a good review for you all and how you decide what books you're going to review. 
Well, one of the things that that is a shelf awareness sort of mantra is that we only run positive reviews. So because we can only do 25 reviews per week, our belief is that we want to spread the word about books that people are loving. So many of our reviewers are booksellers, others are librarians, and then we have others who are just wonderful writers and professional reviewers. But a lot of them also have sort of their niche that they love, like if they're history buffs or, um, you know, some do only nonfiction, some love romance, some love mysteries. And then, of course, we have many that sort of cross over into all kinds of different genres. What we try to do is get a mix of all of those genres I mentioned, romance, mystery, nonfiction, self-help, memoir. And then we also look very carefully at our balance of indie publishers, as well as the big five. And by that, I mean like HarperCollins, Penguin Random House, Little Brown, Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins. We want to make sure that we're not only filling the review slots with those really big publishers, but also the smaller publishers who are doing really interesting things as well. And I think there are more and more of those smaller publishers that are really making a name for themselves. Like, I love the Spiegel and Grau titles. Yes, they're doing some really exciting things. And also, I think Chronicle is doing a lot more mainstream kind of stuff and Workmen and Sourcebooks is really doing some interesting things. So I think, you know, and Europa Editions, of course. So there are a lot of wonderful smaller publishers who we really try to cover. I should have thought of source books because I actually read a ton of their books and I think they do a fabulous job and I love Europa as well. So you find the books that you want to review and then you assign them to people. Is that sort of your process? And then you give them guidelines for what a good review would look like for you all. And I'm assuming once you've gotten going with people, they know what you're looking for. But when you start with somebody new, you say, okay, here's kind of what we're looking for. Well, when someone starts um, new with us as a reviewer, we ask them to tell us what their interests are, as well as send us a sample of some other reviews they've written. And then we do something maybe slightly different from some other reviewers, which is we put together a list of all the, the prominent titles that are coming out in a particular month, and the reviewers get a chance to ask for the books they really want. And we give them sort of a range of books to choose from because, as I said, you know, we only do positive reviews. So we want to make sure that a book has its best chance to find its ideal reviewer. Sometimes we have, you know, several reviewers who are all clamoring for the same book. And we try to balance that out too from month to month. So if one person got their first choice in May, maybe we give somebody else their first choice in June. Makes sense. And it's really nice that you work to match the reviewers up with the books that appeal to them. Because I know when I used to review for one entity, they would just send me the title I was going to review. And a lot of times it wasn't a great fit for me. So it's really nice to be able to pick and choose and say, you know, this book is right up my alley, or I think it's going to be right up my alley. I'd really like to review this particular book. Yes, we try to do that wherever possible. And sometimes, Cindy, if we If there's a book that we really want to make sure is reviewed, we might ask someone who we know has a particular interest in this genre or this author. And especially, for example, if we want to have an interview with that author, we might approach a particular reviewer about working on that particular book. That makes sense. And do you have guidelines for what you consider to be a good review? 
Obviously, they're positive reviews, but are there things you're looking for in your reviews? Yes. We strongly encourage our reviewers to start off in that very first sentence or two to tell us what you thought of the book, some kind of critical assessment, and then use the rest of the review to support that, and then sort of have a clincher that ties it all together. That's what we aim for. And we also have a discover line, we call it, which is the line that sort of encapsulates the review. And we have that run in our at the bottom of the review. So you see that more prominently in our pro reviews right now, but it does show up in our archive for the reader reviews. I'm so glad you mentioned the archive because I was thinking about that a minute ago. That's the other wonderful thing is that in addition to sending out the newsletters, all of that is on your website. So anytime I'm thinking, I know I came across something there, I just go back, search, and I can usually pop up whatever it is I need. So if somebody's new to Shelf Awareness now, they can go back and read years and years of all of these fabulous stories and good book reviews. Thank you, Cindy. We love our archive. And we do try to remind our readers of other books by that author that we've reviewed. So we have hyperlinks in the review of the current book that sends the reader, if they want to, back to the previous titles by this author. The following conversation is with Sarah High, Senior Partnerships Manager at Bookshop.org. The full interview ran on August 3rd. Bookshop.org is such a fantastic company working to help indie bookstores across the United States reach more customers. In this part of our conversation, Sarah talks about how smaller indie bookstores can use Bookshop for their online sales and the way that that benefits both the stores and consumers. I highly recommend checking Bookshop.org out. If you are small, maybe new, you don't want to build up your entire online presence, what you can do instead is have your online presence be Bookshop.org And then your physical space, people come in, they buy whatever they want. But if you're going to order, you order directly through Bookshop, right? That's what happens with some bookstores. Exactly. So especially for these new and smaller booksellers, like you said, Cindy, this is a really good way for indie booksellers to sell books online. Every book that is bought on Bookshop goes directly from the warehouse to the customer. So um, as the bookseller, you don't have to pack, ship, you know, resend deal with customer service. We do all of that on our end. And then the bookseller simply gets that 30% every time a a sale is made through their bookshop profile. And I personally worked at a bookstore as well. And I know how much work it is to have just all of the supplies before you even get started with the rest of it. Get all the supplies, have the space to do it, have the ability to print the labels. All of that is very time-consuming and can cost a lot. And if you are trying to get started, to not have to worry about that component, but instead have that handled by Bookshop has to be phenomenal. Plus, you give 10% off on all books, right? That's right. Yep. We do also do a discount on the books, which is our way of trying to steer those Amazon book buyers away from Amazon and onto Bookshop. Yeah, I love Bookshop. My daughter and I use it regularly, and I just think it's such a great way to order books and to support all of these bookstores and just such a very cool platform. I think you must be so proud to work there. Like, what a cool company. Thank you. I agree. Every every time I'm interacting, every time I interact with booksellers, I'm reminded of how valuable the site is for booksellers. Because as you mentioned, Cindy, having worked in a bookstore yourself, you know the time constraints and the bandwidth constraints, quite frankly, booksellers have 
you're doing so much in addition to fulfilling online orders. So bookshop.org is a really great way to offload some of those online orders and um, help you have an online presence, uh, whether or not you're, you're fulfilling online orders or using us for all of that. And for the bookstore, if they don't have the book in stock already, they have to order it. It has to come to them. Then they have to ship it out. So in those cases, it's going to be faster to get it from Bookshop anyway. Exactly. That's exactly right. This next conversation is with Laura Rossi, founder of Laura Rossi Public Relations. The full interview ran on October 5th. In this portion of our conversation, we discuss social media influencers and their various programs for promoting authors' books. Laura offers her thoughts on whether these programs are worth it and which ones to check out and which ones to avoid. And that's interesting that you mentioned the blog and Bookstagram or tours, because I feel like there are more and more of those. I just see them all the time on Bookstagram now. Yes, there are. And I think, you know, when you and I were kind of prepping for our interview today, one thing that I struggled with was, you know, I'm all for folks, you know, being ambitious and figuring out their place in the publishing industry and, you know, how to creatively put their own passion into helping authors. That said, I have seen, you know, in terms of a trending item, there are more and more hire me for my bookstagram campaign, hire me to do a blog tour for you, hire me and I will, you know, get you X, Y, and Z. And, you know, those quick fixes, like in any industry, I think need to be approached with a little bit of caution. I think there are some trusted individuals that that work with authors and publishers on blog tours. And one of the ways to vet those people is to actually get recommendations from your publisher, from other author friends. And if you're interviewing publicists or you hire a publicist, we usually have kind of our favorites list. You know, one thing that can be just hard for me to see when I'm sitting in the PR chair, because I am a purist, is people thinking if they pay $500 to this person, it's going to help sell books. And $700 to that person because they're going to get, you know, 10 images put on Instagram. And, you know, those are hard things for all of us to measure. And so I would say feeling panicked and thinking throwing money at bloggers or bookstagram or tours, you know, it's take a breath and just, you know, kind of do your research because those things I do think can help when they're plugged in at the right time and strategically. But I have seen, Cindy, so many popping up. And, you know, if, I haven't heard of them and my colleagues haven't heard of them. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm feeling like the jury is still out on whether or not that $500 to $1,000 shouldn't be spent a different way. I had no idea people were charging $500 to $1,000. I'm like, whew. Right. On some of my social media, I do that stuff for free when I love a book. Well, and that's, I guess, what I was just yeah. going to say was like, to me, the important part of Bookstagram is the authentic part of it. So like I'm posting about books because I honestly liked them. If somebody was paying me $500 to put up five slides of a book, I don't know, that kind of takes away from that for me. Like I, I'm only posting about the book because I was paid to versus I'm posting about the book because I read it and I loved it. So I don't know, to me, that just sort of, they don't really seem to go together. Now that's different than the bookstagram or tours. And I do see a couple that seem mm -hmm. to have taken off and are doing quite well and have a good name behind them. And then I just see a ton of others and I'm like, gosh, there's a lot of touring going on. Yes, and that's where I do think, you know, some of these go-to practices in other industries have trickled down into books and that, you know, you're seeing some of the same content pushing and promotion that you might see for a lip gloss or a nail polish. And again, I love, you know, I'm, I, I like beauty products like the next gal, but that is sometimes what feels inauthentic to me as well. There, the editorial piece seems to be missing. 
Um, and this is probably a good time for me to just insert a little thing in here about one of the trends that we're all watching in publishing right now is what really is the power of TikTok. You know, we know it's been making some books hit bestseller lists and sell, and it's been getting incredible, you know, opportunities for authors to get publishing contracts and to have huge success and to break out of the noise of, you know, some of this older traditional way of going through a publisher and getting a book published. So I think that's an exciting, interesting social media platform. For those of you listening, you know, a lot of people talk about book talk all the time and how they're discovering books through book talk. And so that's another place where people are mining authors. Sometimes I even call them innocent authors because they're thinking, how do I get on book talk? How can I make this work? And throwing money at it isn't necessarily always the way to go for the authentic and real way. So I just say, you know, caution the trending of things like influencers on platforms that, you know, it's like hitting the lottery. The last interview is with Victoria Wood, founder of Biblio Lifestyle. The full interview ran on November 2nd. In this snippet from our conversation, we discuss her BYOB book club, where BYOB stands for Bring Your Own Book. In her community, everyone comes together twice a month to chat about the reads that they have read and loved versus all discussing the same book. You have a paid community as well, and you have a BYOB book club, which I love this idea, and I was reading all about it on your website. So tell me a little bit more about the BYOB book club in your community. Oh, thank you so much, Cindy. I decided after running in real life book clubs, and I still do, but also trying to translate it in the online space with all the content I was creating and all the things I was doing. And I still very much wanted to have that space where we could just talk about the books we're reading. And I know sometimes having a book club selection can be a bit challenging for folks to kind of get around to it because you might not be in the mood for that particular book. You might want to read something else. So then I decided, well, hey, why don't I just create a book club where we can read what we want and just show up and talk to each other about it? Because sometimes, again, (laughs) um, life happens. And while the book club selection might be something incredibly literary, someone might be going through something in their life and all they want to do is laugh or they want a romance. They just want to know that everything is okay. So that's how the Bring Your Own Book Club was born. So essentially, like the title suggests, we invite you to bring your own book, come to our monthly meetings and talk all about it. We have two meetings every month. It's usually the last Friday in the month. Sometimes we will do Thursday. We can vote on the day and we have two times. 1 p.m. Eastern time and 7 p.m. Eastern time to kind of accommodate folks who are in different time zones, uh, not just here in the US, but across the world. And do those meetings go a very long time when everybody's talking about different books or are they pretty concise? Actually, it's pretty concise. I think because no one wants to kind of go into spoiler territory, but you just say enough that would pique someone's interest. And what I really encourage and what I've started doing more of as well is tend to kind of try and provide the best book comparison you can or a mood recommendation. So you're saying, well, hey, if you're looking for something that is twisty, that will make you think, then this one is for you. If you're looking for something more atmospheric, where it's more about just the vibe, then this one is for you. And if you want to laugh out loud, this is for you. And if you're able to say, well, if you read X, then maybe Y would be good for you. But we do share a little premise, maybe highlight something that we loved about it, and uh, then we keep it moving. And then oftentimes, just from that conversation, it would be a spin-off conversation of, oh, did you read this book by that same author? 
or something else that the book sounds like it reminded someone else of. So I think there's endless conversation. Uh, you can never predict where it's going to go. And I think that's what makes it fun. And everybody's TBRs explode after each one of these meetings. After each of the meetings, always. And it helps that we have our replays available. So if you want to hear what I've been reading or what someone else is reading, you can always just go back to the replays. And um, yeah, I'll leave a note. We also have a book recommendations channel. So even if it's not the book you end up sharing at book club, which again, sometimes we share more than one, you have that open channel as well. And I recently shared a book and someone was saying, oh, well, you know, I've, I've been meaning to read that one. So I'm really excited to get to it. And sometimes we have author deep dives where we're talking just about this one particular author and folks are really excited to see, well, what will be your favorite after kind of going through their catalog. That would be so much fun. And as I said, I'm sure my TBR would just continue to explode. Something that I don't need happening at, these, <laughs> at this moment. I feel like my TBR is always exploding. <laughs> same, same. So many books, so little time. Exactly. Thanks so much for joining me on this trip down memory lane today. I had a blast reflecting on some of the highlights from my behind the scenes conversations in 2023. And I hope they resonate with you as well. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From A Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. I am a listener-supported show, and your contributions really help me continue to produce this show. Please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From A Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. I hope you'll tune in next time. Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it, because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.